0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with Richard Griffiths about his new book, What Did You Do During the War? The Last Throws of the British Pro-Nazi Right, 1940 to 1945. Richard, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, welcome. i very pleased to be here. Well, thank you. Well,
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about
1: yourself. Uh, yes, well, I, uh, I'm i basically... Um, my subject, uh, most my main subject is uh, French literature and French history and my whole career, my academic career has been in French departments (laughs) I I started uh, uh, as a fellow of a Cambridge college and then I moved to Oxford and became a fellow of an Oxford college and then I got the desire to run my own department so I went to Cardiff I come from Wales and it seemed the right place uh, to, to go at that stage, and I went to Cardiff to head a department of French there, and then I ended my career at King's College London, um, one of the posts I'd always coveted, one that I'd always wanted, I actually got, and went to King's College London to chair there, and then I retired, and I'm now in a, a retired state.
0: It sounds like uh, quite a different uh, focus for your career compared to uh, this book here. Uh, how did it, how was it that you came to write this book?
1: Well, it's the third book I've written on this kind of subject, actually, and it all happened by chance uh, in nineteen. Well, in the mid seventies, uh, I thought of a book. I've always been interested in the workings of the right and why people come to the kind of views that they do. Uh, And I was working on the French right in the interwar period, Uh, and I wanted to do a book on those on the French right who were pro-Nazi in that period, and how that showed up during the war. Some of them collaborated, some didn't, and so on. And so I got in touch with my publisher and said, can I have a contract for this? Because I was like working to a contract before I do two months. And he said, oh yeah, that would be fine, but would you mind going and looking to see if there's any English parallels that you could work up for it? So I went and spent two or three weeks in the archives, reading and so on. And I suddenly realized there was this enormous subject which nobody had touched at that stage, which was pro-Germanism, pro-Nazism in Britain in the 1930s. Um, It had not been touched on. I didn't know why, but there was this vast... Of course, now everybody knows all about it, but I suddenly came upon this cache of material which nobody had used, mostly in published material, in newspapers, magazines, everywhere, the people who were coming out saying what a brilliant job Hitler was doing, and so on and so on. Um, and so I got back to my publisher and said, scrap the book I said I was going to do, I'd like to do a book on uh, British pronouncism in the 30s, and that was a book called Fellow Travelers of the Right I invented that phrase, which now everyone seems to use about those people, but of course a lot more has been done on the 30s since Um, and that book struck me as a one-off, really that that was exactly what I've done, what I said I was going to do, the war broke out, and I presumed that thereafter uh, there wouldn't be much to say, mainly because I'd been dealing, of course, mainly with people's public statements, Uh, and therefore, after the outbreak of war, there wasn't likely to be as much of that. So uh, that was it. And then out of the blue, um, some years later... In that book, i would mentioned that there was a club called the Right Club, which was a subversive organization in Britain in 1939, which contained quite a number of MPs and peers of the realm and so on, uh, and which was violently anti-Semitic and very much pro-Nazi. And I said in the book, is it, there is a, um, a membership list of this club, but sadly, it's been lost from sight. Also, within the national archives, uh, any ref, the the files relevant to this have still not been released. So, one is still very much in the dark. But the we know that this membership list exists, but we don't know where it is. And suddenly, out of the blue, I got a letter saying, um, uh, I think I've got the list you were looking for. (laughs) Uh, And I thought, just a minute. It was just at the time when Trevor Roper had been taken in by the Hitler Diaries. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to go on record saying this is real. (laughs) It's probably somebody having a hoax on me. But eventually, I went to see this chap. He was a solicitor in, um, in Lincoln's Inn in London. And he said, oh, this book was found at the bottom of a filing cabinet in, in the office, and I think it must be what you want. And it was. And it was the most marvellous find. And also, through the membership list, it, it, the membership list in itself was interesting, but the people themselves, if you followed them up, there was a vast amount that they were getting up to, particularly in the first part of the war. Uh, in other words, it was undercover stuff rather than the published stuff I'd been talking about. And um, therefore, um, naturally, I decided I must write this up. And that became a second book, which was about the right in Britain, the pro-Nazi right in the first nine months of the war, what was called the phony war before, before the fall of France and so on. And that seemed to me to... And that came out 18 years after the first book. It came. Out, the first book came out in 1980. This came out in 1998. And um, again, I thought, well, in May 1940, they all these people were arrested. At least there were a vast number of arrests. And even those who were not arrested probably didn't get up to anything more. So I don't think there's any point in my thinking I could do anything beyond this. And then gradually over the years, I've been discovering all kinds of things which proved to me that there was a lot to be said about what happened between 1940 and 1945. And I first of all thought of writing those up as articles or perhaps they might become chapters of a book. But funnily enough out of the blue, the publishers, Routledge, got in touch with me and asked whether I'd got anything. That I was writing at the moment. So of course I naturally said, as it happens, I have, and um, <laughs> got the. Um, and so I, I I I got a contract for this book, and I had so much material already that it 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 proved quite easy to write, and so that's come out a further 18 years on. So it's been quite a quite a uh, an itinerary. In the meanwhile, I've been producing my usual stuff on French literature, uh, on French history, but also because I'm now retired to my native Wales, I've been writing about the entrepreneurs in Wales in the 19th century, and I've done done a book on that as well, so it's all very mixed. (laughs) And I think I've now finished with with in Britain, at least I hope I have.
0: We'll, we'll have to check back with you in about 18 years, just to be certain.
1: <laughs> well, yes, do. Uh, I shall then be, in 18 years, I'll be 99, so that will be about right. <laughs>
0: um, one of the things you do, you do uh, in the first few chapters of this book is you go back and you revisit the period covered in your uh, second book, uh, Patriotism yep, Perverted, yep. And, and you yep. addressed two things in particular. One, the first of these being the myths of national unity during this phony war period between September of 1939 and May of 1940. And I was wondering if you could elaborate what you mean by the myths and, and, and what is it that, that that makes it a myth of national unity?
1: Well, there, there are a whole number of things that seem to me to point to this myth. Uh, and I used two examples if, for this. One was these statements about himself and about his movement. Uh,
0: uh, really, that, that's, that's Oswald uh, mostly, uh, who he was claimed,
1: the... He claimed that the moment war broke out, he told all his people to fight and not to be, you know. And that has been repeated so many times by different people working on this period. And yet, if you look at the evidence of what was happening with him, Um, quite uh, quite clearly after the event he was taking bits of statements he'd made at certain stages and making them provide a kind of narrative which was contrary to the actual facts which is that he was uh, actually encouraging his supporters not to fight in the war. Well, that's one thing but that's really just in relation to the uh, the movement, the the uh, British unit of Fascists, but the other thing that was said was that when Arthur Bryant brought out a book in January 1940, which to, which was very blatant. I can't I still can't understand why he produced it at that stage of the war. But he it was very solidly pro-Nazi and very evidently anti-Semitic. And yet, uh, and, and the, what others have written about it have said is, oh, but it, it was so contrary to national feeling at that time, there was a tremendous reaction to his writing this book, and he had to go around buying up all the copies uh, in order to, to hide them. Well, the opposite was the case. He wrote this book, which I must say, when you read it, is pretty dreadful. And. The reviews were glowing. They said, here we have somebody finally explaining to us uh, what was happening in Germany, and we must show an understanding towards the Germans and so on. They were still saying this in January 1940. And ignoring, which, of course, people would do in that society at that time, where anti-Semitism was not seen. Lots of people disapproved of it, but it wasn't seen as quite so uh, reprehensible as it is now, really ignoring the whole business of the anti-Semitism in the book. Uh, not only were the reviews a good, but he himself was so pleased by them that when he had one or two bad ones, he wrote to say, uh, you're, you're out of line and, and, and everybody thinks this is marvellous. They also arranged for the publishers to send copies to the king and to the prime minister and to just about everybody. Uh, and so uh, my feeling is that in the phony war period, people were not, you know, before the war there'd been lots of people who had sympathy for Nazi Germany, but people hadn't quite adjusted to the wartime situation. And the national unity was not as great, as as, as one them said. If there had been peace moves, uh, serious peace moves, uh, there might have been a lot of support for them in the country.
0: And this actually gets to one of the things that you refer to repeatedly throughout the book, which is the challenge that you had in discerning or, 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 or analyzing their post-war uh, the, the the wartime statements and how after the war they tried to uh, spin or interpret them in such a way to take into consideration uh, how uh, events unfolded and how oftentimes it, it was as you point out with with Oswald Mosley the the head of the of the fascists in Britain how how he was selectively pairing it or how Arthur Bryant uh, you know when when he realizes what errors he's made, he tries. To, he basically buys back all the books and destroys them. And, and how afterwards he tries to again gloss over this and, and, and pretend that it was uh, it was an aberration and not.
1: Yeah, and he in- wrote from then on tremendously patriotic books about the, the Napoleonic Wars and standing up to foreign foes and all that kind of thing, which was the result of his fright, I think, at, at this situation.
0: Uh, another uh, uh, re-examination that you do of this period is the infiltration of fascists into the uh, pr- into uh, the peace movement, uh, both immediately leading up to the war and then during the, uh, the during the phony war period. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about that. What was happening within the peace pledge union, and and and, and how exactly they were infiltrating, and 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 why it was in. in, in you know, why was they were accepted in a way?
1: Well, the Peace Trench Movement, um, the Peace Movement had been quite powerful in the mid-30s, the, and and some people of very high integrity were involved in it. And I, I, in fact, despite what I've been writing about the infiltration and so on, the vast majority of Peace Movement people were not fascists, were well-meaning and absolutely firm in their principles. But there are two things happened. I think a lot of them were very naive and were taken in by a lot of propaganda. But at the same time, the various fascist movements that there were, and it wasn't just the British, Union fascists, there were all sorts of bodies, the Nordic League, the Link, all kinds of people. They... Um, gradually persuaded, well, they persuaded a lot of their members to join the Peace Pledge Union, particularly when, at the outbreak of war, most of them um, gave up their open activities. Um, they, uh, there were meetings of these bodies with um, entry forms for the, for the Peace Pledge Union lying around, and people were being persuaded to fill them in and so on. So the Peace Pledge Union did have a lot of infiltrators. And, of course, in a sense, it was hard for them to distinguish because these people were anti-war as well. These people were anti-war because they were anti-war against Hitler. But it could seem that there was a lot in common between all these people. So, first of all, there was that. But secondly, the Peace News, the newspaper of the Peace Pledge Union did produce an awful amount of pro-Nazi stuff still uh, in the lead-up to the war, but also after the outbreak of war. Uh, And
0: uh, MI5,
1: for example, was extremely worried about peace news. Uh, So um, it's quite a complicated situation. But some of the most prominent people arguing against the war, for example, the Duke of Bedford, Uh, were members of the Peace Pledge Union as well, but were producing uh, heavy criticism of the government for its attitude towards Germany, praising Hitler as the man who'd stood out against international finance, by which they meant the Jews. Uh, uh, And so it was a very muddled kind of situation, and uh, I, I'm tempted to think that, in a sense, um, these people, without realizing it, helped the war effort because they discredited the perfectly decent uh, peace movement, which might have done quite a lot to persuade the British to come to come some kind of arrangement with Germany. They actually discredited the people that they were among, the people they'd infiltrated.
0: Did they end up creating doubts among uh, the majority of the movement who were not uh, pro-fascist or pro-Nazi?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yes. I mean, a, n- a number of people spoke out against, against this aspect, and I think that's something that I wanted to stress in my book, that though I'm looking at how people made use of movements, there were still a lot of people who were aware of what was happening. When the um, president of the Peace Press Union before the war, Canon Morris, joined one of the big fascist movements, The Link, uh, there was a tremendous fury, um And as it happened, the editor of Peace News was on holiday when this happened, and his assistant editor was... Uh, violently anti-fascist and um, came out very strongly against what was happening. So, yes, I I think there was um, a whole lot of uh, uh, muddle among the members because uh, they couldn't help feeling that a man like the Duke of Bedford, as a clergyman I know once said to me when I said I was writing on the Duke of Bedford, he said, oh, that great uh, proponent of peace, that marvellous man <laughs> um, uh, and, and yes uh, a man of high principle who got everything wrong um, and I think that's one of the things that I feel about many of the people I've been looking at, one has to look and see why they took up the views that they did and that's why this present book I think is of more use than the first two because you see these people under stress you see them under failure, their movement, you know, they're, 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 you, you can see all that and you can see, I think, rather more clearly the kind of things that brought them to fascism in the first place and brought them to pro
0: Another aspect of your book in, uh, that I, I was really fascinated by is how the degree to which their social standing, Uh, not just the Duke of Bedford, but uh, like the the, the Duke of Westminster and the Duke of Wellington, how their social standing uh, provided them with a considerable latitude in terms of the positions they took, especially during this period. And what what distinguishes the period uh, is not just the end of the Phony War and uh, Chamberlain's replacement by Churchill, but then right in May 1940 is when you start to see the detentions under Defense Regulation 18B. Yeah, yeah. And you point out in the book how uh, the detention of various people was oftentimes, uh, on, on the surface, very, uh, it, was, it was very uh, scattered. And, and yet, as yeah. you point out, that there, that, there were, uh, that there were certain factors at play which really helped to distinguish who it was that was detained and who it was that was basically uh, given a pass.
1: Yeah, I think the foot soldiers tended to get detained plus one or two obvious people like Sir Oswald Mosley and so on. But, um, uh, the uh, yes, definitely class had something to do with it. Um, uh, As you can see by some of the comments made by those who should be detaining these people, you know, I I thought it would give a very bad example to people if they thought that a member of the upper classes was doing this kind of thing and so on. Uh, I think, um, I think one of the interesting things uh, about this book is how much it shows society has changed in Britain and the uh, almost obsequious attitude of some people towards the aristocracy, which I don't think we have now. I mean, we, 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 we admire them in some ways and don't admire them when they do the wrong things but I don't think we feel that they have a different kind of existence and different rights from what from what we have. And I feel that there's a change in, the, in society that's come about, which is very much pinpointed by some of the things that um, were happening with these people. But also, there are other reasons, I think. There are so many possible reasons as to why these people were not arrested. One of them a very telling one which has been put forward, and and in fact, the Duke of Bedford himself put it forward, and other people have since, is that um, the government was extremely worried because one of their main wishes was that the United States should come into the war. And uh, American opinion was therefore very important to them. And they actually were worried that the Americans might get the impression that the whole of the British aristocracy were a rotten core, you know, and that there was so much pro-Nazism among these prominent people that it might make Britain a very bad ally in any any war that that America should join. I I think um, that's another possibility. And then with one or two of them, Uh, who actually involved themselves in spying, Uh, there was the worry about uh, the evidence being, on the whole, gathered from decoding of uh, documents um, and not wanting the enemy to know that we had their codes. So there are a whole series of, of possible reasons, but there's no doubt about it. that I mean, there was one lady who I mentioned, whose brother became a minister under Churchill. And when she was arrested, her brother went and berated the Home Secretary, and she was let free. Um, And in the House of Commons, when questions were asked, the Home Secretary just said, I did it on the merits of the case. And that was that. But we now know that it was the intervention of her brother that caused
0: Uh, Another example that uh, you mentioned is uh, General J.F.C. Fuller and how he avoided arrest even though he was a very prominent member of the fascist movement and how there may have been uh, a great deal of protection uh, from the army uh, uh, for... for, uh, uh,
1: Yeah, nobody knows why Fuller was not arrested. His wife, he was called Boney because Bonaparte, everyone thought he was like like Napoleon. Uh, But um, uh, his wife said it was because he knew too much. Uh, th- that was a very interesting comment. I'm not quite sure what she was suggesting he knew about. But um, I think, basically, um, yes, he was one of our great military strategists and was highly admired for that. He was one of the great proponents of tank warfare. Uh, and uh, his political opinions... Uh, would certainly have had him put in prison if he was treated exactly as other people with the same sort of opinions and the same sort of activities uh, you we know, concerned. But he, um, he did escape, and it's been suggested by some people it may have been the army, pro- you know, figures within the army protecting him, because General Ironside um, also was under suspicion, but so uh, but that too uh, might have been a very bad example if it was thought that our military were were involved in i i think there was a great deal of cover-up not wishing people to think how rotten at the core british society might be
0: uh, another aspect that you refer to uh with a lot of the uh, members of the pre-war fascist movement is that when the war came, and especially uh, and is, uh, you know both before and after the fall of France, that for many of them, even though they never really changed their views, their, their patriotism uh, took precedence over their ideology and they subsumed their opinions and uh, committed themselves to the war effort in various forms.
1: Yeah, well, my second book was called Patriotism Perverted. And that's what I think was there in these pe- people. Almost all of them, uh, of those people who are pro Nazi in Britain, combined that with great British patriotism. We, looking at the war, find that hard to understand. But before the war, there was no contradiction between being a patriot and being pro Nazi. And once war broke out, they had to make decisions. Um, many of them took the decision to volunteer for the army or the forces in general, uh, go and fight, and so on. Some of them retaining their original views, some of them, in fact, changing their views because of what they have seen Germany up to. Uh, so, yes, there's, there's an awful lot of um, disturbance in these people as to what they should do. Um, and, in fact... Others, of course, continue with subversive activity uh, in the phony war period. Some even continue with it after that. But by that stage, with all the arrests, uh, one of the interesting things is uh, watching how people tried to cover up their activities at that stage by protesting their... Uh, patriotism and the fact that they've never been pronounced at all, and pointing the figure, finger at their former friends. Uh, it's rather like <laughs> in, in, in France, um, then when uh, uh, the end of the war, when it looked as though the Allies were going to win, the number of Frenchmen who became who declared themselves to be members of the resistance right from the start, whereas the resistance was very small at the start of the war. Uh, There's this kind of rewriting of history which was already starting in 1940. They're already um, claiming themselves to be And some of them believed quite clearly what they said. There's one man who'd been violently anti-Churchill before the war who eventually claimed to be one of the great, this is an MP who eventually uh, made himself out to be one of the greatest supporters of of Churchill. Um, one man who, after the war, was so convinced that he'd never been a pro-Nazi that he took uh, a university press to court, um, threatened to take them to court. Uh, um, because they published something saying that he had been pro-Nazi. Um, he actually, he hadn't just covered up. He believed his own cover-up.
0: <laughs> yeah. He basically, he, he, the first person he sold on the, on on the, you know, on the idea was himself, and he was, you know, That's he, he right. could be very convincing to
1: himself. <laughs> yes, quite, quite. So, I mean, actually... We all um, rewrite history um, in our own lives. It's, it's a, a great factor. I mean, when you look through old letters and you suddenly realize things weren't quite as you've been telling people they were uh, in your own life, it's quite clear that we spend a lot of our time ordering the past in our minds, making it seem rational, coherent, whereas it never is. And so that's a natural thing, which all of us do. But we're not usually covering up things. But these people um, were covering up, sometimes consciously, sometimes, I think, sometimes unconsciously.
0: One of the that you uh, discuss in the book, but we haven't mentioned yet, are uh, people who uh, were seeking to... Try to arrange some sort of peace between uh, Britain and Nazi Germany. You mentioned two of them in particular. Uh, one was a one was the Duke, and the other was a, a Lord Brockett. I was wondering if you could speak to their efforts and how they thought they were going to bring this about, and, and how they were treated.
1: Yeah, well, I think the thing um, um, about them is that they're of a different category from all these other pro-Nazis that I've been talking about who were members of extreme movements and all that kind of thing. They were very sympathetic to Germany right up to the outbreak of war and after the outbreak of war. Um, But they thought that they were... They were so convinced... This is another aspect of the aristocracy in the period. They are so convinced of their own worth and that they could do things that other people couldn't. But they were convinced that they could bring about peace. Um, In this, I suppose, Brockett, at least, had been encouraged before the war by Neville Chamberlain, who'd used him as a kind of unofficial link with Germany, Uh, though even Chamberlain's advisers had said um, he was far too pro-German, uh, to to really take on that role. But when, after the Germans marched into Czechoslovakia in March 1939, when governmental policy changed drastically, we gave the guarantee to Poland, we were standing firmer against Germany and so on, these two people, uh, Lord Brockett and the Duke of Bucleu, um were out of step with that. And yet they seemed to be unaware, well, they knew that that was a new government policy, but they believed it was wrong, and they believed that they had great support in governmental circles in the kind of views that they took. So these are quite a different kettle of fish from some of the people who I'm talking about. They were absolutely convinced. They, Before they did anything, they consulted with the foreign secretary and the foreign office, They talked to people, they got encouragement from people like R.A. Butler, who was very, this is just pre-war, people like R.A. Butler, who were very pro-peace with Germany and very um, uh, pro-understanding with Germany. And so, um, but where, where they were dangerous was that they gave the impression to the Germans Because they kept going to Germany, meeting Germans, or meeting Germans over here, telling them, of course the British won't stand up about Danzig or about Poland. Uh, You know, there's there's this guarantee, but uh, basically nothing will come of it, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Thinking, I think that they were doing the right thing, getting it completed. They were actually two very stupid men, <laughs> as, as one of the foreign office people pointed out. But they 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 actually uh, did a great deal of. I think they did more damage than most of the actual fascists and the and you know the sub, the actual subversive people by what is basically, I think, their stupidity. They gave the Germans the impression we would not stand firm. That was before the war. Then, when war broke out, um, because of the invasion of Poland, uh, they were convinced that they were the God-given people to actually put out peace feelers to Germany during the Phony War period. And that, too, um, led to all sorts of problems. And uh, it's a very murky area. Most, most, part of that is dealt with in my previous book as well. Um, well, I was and, actually
0: thinking about how it tied into your first book because you make this point in Fellow Travelers of the Right that uh, in the 1930s, the, Germans pref- the, the Nazis preferred this sort of informal, almost social diplomacy uh, yes, in, that's over, right. over going over to the official channels.
1: That's right, so they they were the ideal. And because they were quite clearly part of the aristocracy, the Germans actually believed that they had powers that they didn't. They said, you know, Lord Brockett is a member of the House of Lords, says the Duke of Buclue. The Duke of Buclue is brother-in-law to the king. um, He must have power, and so on. And so um, it did, uh, I think, quite a bit of damage. Then came the arrest and Churchill taking over in May 1940. And it came as quite a shock to both of them. Well, first of all, the king at that point sacked the Duke of Buccleuch from being his high steward, which was a post in the king's gift, which was a very important post in the royal household. And Buclough gave had to give that up. Lord Brockett, seeing all that and having lots of people saying, you know, nasty things about him, now that now that um, uh, it was clear that uh, he had been pro Nazi throughout the period, Brockett had a nervous breakdown. And Buclue, um kept a very low profile from then on, though occasionally could be persuaded to come out of that to. Uh, half back, half heartedly back, again, various peace moves by some quite disreputable people. But no, it's it, 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 um, the whole thing, as far as they were concerned, by this stage is the uh, clue feeling uh, slightly aggrieved that he's under surveillance. Uh, Brockett really not replying to letters when Baku and people write to him about various things. He's not going to get involved in anything at all for that. And, and that's the other point about my book. I try and point out how varied the responses people are to to the events that happen and how uh, a man like, like Brockett really um, took no part in anything from then onwards.
0: Another group of people who had a similar reaction, uh, especially after the arrests, were the, uh, the Back to the Land movement. And, and you spend uh, a, a chapter discussing this very interesting group of people who blended this, uh, this, this, this what we would nowadays would classify as environmentalism, this organic farming movement, with this right-wing politics. I was wondering if you could speak to them and uh, how they responded to uh, the course of events during the war.
1: Yeah, well, uh, the actual movement itself has been brilliantly dealt with by a young scholar called Dan Stone, who, who's written extensively on them. What uh, what I was looking at really was the way in which they behaved during the war, as well. And and uh, but but they um, one of the things which has been noted about about these people is how easy it was if you had uh, environmental, ecological interests for you to fall into the trap of right-wing movements, anti-Semitism and that kind of thing, if you were believing in the natural approach to farming and so on. Uh, and you felt that what the greatest danger to to Britain, you know, back, going back to its roots, its farming roots and so on, the greatest danger was the capitalist system in the towns, and if you then associated the Jews with that and with cosmopolitanism because they were very nationalistic. It was it was blood and soil sort of stuff. Um, you you then find a lot of these people. Being um, anti-semitic pro-nazi and so on, uh, some of them were members of the british union of fascists and but that was reasonably unimportant there but there were other people who uh, spearheaded uh, the ecological movement who were also um, strongly um, Pro-Nazi. I think that chapter, and it's a very long chapter, I'm afraid, in my book. That chapter is taking the various people to show how you just cannot predict from what people were doing up to and including the first part of the war, how you cannot predict what they're going to do for the rest of the war, because you have everything from continued activity, uh, often subversive activity, on the one hand. And at the other extreme, people were took entirely the opposite line and became completely what we might call reformed and completely uh, different. And then in the middle, you have people who are, some of them being patriotic about uh, holding the same opinions behind the scenes, um, which we've already talked about, and some who gradually changed their minds about Germany, um, and uh, if you look at all those people, it just shows you how impossible it is, really, to make generalizations about human behavior in the, in, under stress.
0: And I think that uh, the the common you know development seems to have been that, uh, if I could extend back to your first two books, is that. After the outbreak of war, there is a gradual breaking down of that pre-war networking that seemed to sustain them, and so you had some people that were seemed to be driven by their beliefs, continuing to remain true to their their pre-war stances, and others who, with without that reinforcement, reconsidering or and, or and going off in different directions.
1: Yes, yes, and and you know people sort of. Um, Uh, uh, my my favourite example of somebody blaming others for what he'd already done is the MP I mentioned in one chapter who had a neighbouring estate in Scotland to the Duke of Bedford and he decided that the best thing for him to do was attack the Duke of Bedford because everyone was doing that and he would show how patriotic he was by saying, and the great example he gave I think this shows how society has changed. The great example he gave of how he was reacting against the Duke of Bedford was that he had withdrawn the Duke of Bedford's shooting rights on his estate.
0: <laughs> a, 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 a damning blow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, one of the things you, you, that, that also seems to uh, be common uh, among this group is how, by and large, they don't seem to have much influence after the war. They, 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 you know, there, there's the uh, examples of, um, of uh, Chesterton and uh, Mosley, of course. But by and large, they, they really seem to uh, have you know, collectively given up on politics. Even though there is still a, a far-right movement in Britain after the war, they don't seem to be very uh, prevalent in it.
1: Uh, it's, it's a different kind of far-right movement in many ways. If you look at the League of Empire Loyalists, it's all about loss of empire, and it's a different kind of racialism. It's all about immigration from the West Indies and so on. Uh, one or two of them do become members of these new movements and so on, but don't play a very prominent part in them. Um And a whole lot of other people, I mean, you find in their letters them talking about the old days and being still pro-fascist in that sense. But a whole lot of people settle down to their other activities. Um, None of us is single-minded. None of us has just one activity. Uh, Most people have all kinds of different activities of which... And and this is true of these people, too. Fascism was one of their activities. So you find the ecologists actually being very prominent and very effective uh, in the new ecological movements. They're the founding fathers, in a sense, of the post-war ecological movement in this country. Um, You find another man who who was very keen on Wagner's music who founds the Wagner Society and sublimates his old fascism in that um, you find um, all sorts of people just continuing their lives and some of them trying to forget what their lives had been like before some some of them trying to uh, I, I, I can say um, uh, I have a little sort of personal anecdote about this. When I was writing on my first book, Fellow Travelers of the Right, um, I was... No, sorry, it was on the second book. Uh, I was living in a village in England. um, And sitting in my study, writing, I was on sabbatical leave. uh, So I was there quite a lot of the time, writing away, uh, and it was by a window which looked out onto the onto the front of the house and the and the gate and we got a local workman in to work on the gate and my wife took out some coffee for him and his mate and they were talking and they said, your husband, he's at home an awful lot, and she said, oh, yes, yes he's writing a book and then one of them said, what's the book about? Uh, and she told them And this man said, oh, he'd be interested in Mr. So-and-so in the village. And I suddenly realized that there was a man in that village who'd been a very prominent figure in the fascist movement. And all the people I knew had no idea about this. But this local workman knew all about it that this chap had been a pro he's uh, uh, Somebody who figures quite strongly in my present talk. I'm not going to say which of them. <laughs> Did you have a chance to
0: meet him? Uh, uh, yes, during that
1: period? I met him on one occasion um, at a party given by my mother-in-law for her uh, 90th birthday. Uh, and he was one of the guests, because she had absolutely no idea about him at all. Wow.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, well, I've, um, I, 50 years ago, I wrote a book on French Catholic literature, uh, which uh, went down quite well in France. I, I, there was a French translation published, and it went down really quite well in France. And ever since then, I've been invited to give talks at things about that area, and to write in collective volumes. And I've done a oh, whole, about 25 articles, I suppose, on that subject. And a French publishing house has asked me to choose 14 of my best articles to bring them together as a collective volume for them. Um, and so I've been collecting them together, realizing that they need polishing, they need, the things need doing to them. Um, uh, but putting them together and I've just sent well I'm just sending that off to the publisher and they've come back to me and said um, what they'd also like to do is produce a a revised version of the book that I published 50 years ago (laughs) so I'm I'm all set to start on that now Uh, after which I am gonna return to British subjects again
0: Well, well, best of luck with your upcoming projects. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Griffiths, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your uh, schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much.